Hey guys, break out your top hats and airships. This week we're digging into Mario Odyssey and Escapism. Hey guys, welcome back to 8-Bit Archaeology. My name's Eric and I love talking about video games. So this week I'm going a little unscripted, but it's something I was ruminating on that I wanted to talk about for a little while, and that is escapism in game design. So this is a topic that I've touched on before that I, I haven't really dug into completely, and it's it's the concept of escapism through video games. So why do we why do we collectively play video games? Is it just because they're fun? Is it because they're a hobby for us to do in our free time? Or is it, you know, because they can take us away to different places that we don't usually go to in our own heads. The way I look at it is that video games give us a chance to get away from our own reality for a little while, whether you're stressed, bored, or whatever. And, you know, the the, the open concept of escapism can seem like a mildly troubling topic on the surface because you shouldn't ha want to or have to escape from your real life, but I don't I don't necessarily, necessarily look at it as a bad thing. I look at it more as like how people interact with art or music, right? People interact with those things and it sort of takes them away to to their own world, inside their own head. When I look at a piece of art, I'm projecting myself onto that piece of art. When I hear a piece of music, uh, God, if it is a good piece of music, it will take me away. That's sort of more the topic that I want to talk on, and video games do a very, very good job of this because they create comprehensive uh, environments that we can submerge our disbeliefs into to get away from our reality for a little while in a way that makes them interactive and we can sort of craft our own new worldview from exploring various other worlds. So what really creates the construct of escapism in a game and how can it become so submersive? So what I look for in a game to take me away to someplace else and really envelop me in its world is several different factors. One is world building and world design. So the environments that I'm exploring with a character need to be uh, thoughtful, uh, intricate, and very well put together to be believable. I'm not going to believe some half-designed uh, 3D world with uh, sharp polygons all over the place if it doesn't look like that's what the world is supposed to be, right? You can uh, Video game 3D worlds can be crafted into anything that you want them to be, but if they're not done in a convincing manner, then I'm going to lose all bearing on, you know, immersing myself in this gameplay. Another thing is that exploring needs to be fun. Uh, simply walking around or like walking simulators can be fun in their own right, but to me that, that style of gameplay doesn't strike me as something particularly scintillating. There needs to be intrigue for me to keep moving. I need to see something that I want to keep investigating. I need to know that there's things for me to do in this world and that I'm not just left to my own inhibitions because, you know, as, as, as beautiful as open world games are, especially Breath of the Wild, which does it extremely well, Sometimes they can be overwhelming if you don't know exactly where to start. So there's sort of a give and take when you're talking about immersive world design and escapism because there needs to be enough for the player to go off of to have uh, things to do, but there also needs to be a sense of freedom. Like, they get to make the choice of what they get to do. And, you know, all games, in a way, are, at a core, have some sort of meaningful linear path that you're supposed to take, but some games you can just say you know, screw it and just go off and do whatever you want. And Breath of the Wild and Skyrim are prime examples of that, right? Skyrim puts you out into the world as the Dragonborn, and I, you know, I I played 40 hours of that game when it first came to Switch, and I completely ignored the plot. I think I played into the Civil War stuff a little bit, but I spent countless hours just exploring dungeons and increasing my own power and just finding everything that the world had to offer. And same goes for Breath of the Wild. I spent I, I think I put in well over 100 hours before I even wanted to take on Ganon. It wasn't even a matter of feeling like I wasn't ready. I felt like I was ready after three or four 
you know, after like the third Divine Beast, but I just didn't want to do it because I was too, I didn't want my adventure to end because at least from my perspective, when I beat the final boss, that tends to be when, when my mind is less invested in the game and I'm ready to move on to something else. And that's something I didn't want to do, especially with Breath of the Wild. So that's why I prolonged it so much because that world is so well crafted. Now, those two are examples of mainly open world games that uh, treat escapism, I think, in a pretty, pretty right way. Um, I think they both handle it really well. But what I want to talk about more is sort of sandbox games and escapism in them, and that's where I'm kind of getting to as we move towards the the main game for this episode's discussion, which is Mario Odyssey. So for a little bit of background, Super Mario Odyssey is sort of the third in a line of open sandbox games in the Super Mario franchise, right? So the first one was Super Mario 64, which kind of created the standard for 3D gaming that we have nowadays on the N64. And then there was Super Mario Sunshine, which can be contested among different people. I personally love the game. it was a good take on a sort of destination but it wasn't and and, you know a a sandbox environment and uh i thought both of those games should be revered in their own right for their own time and they sort of you know you look at these two games and it's like okay how can we further build on this well the switch gets announced last year and we also get an announcement of mario returning to a 3d sandbox environment for the first time in oh god i don't know well over a decade and we're all ecstatic but also scared because you know super mario odyssey or super mario sunshine wasn't the most well-received Mario game, and people were afraid that Nintendo was going to fall back into the same tendencies that they did in Super Mario Sunshine, but I think they found a way of translating the 3D sandbox environment and sort of reinventing it, and also rediscovering a sense of immersion that I don't think was, I think is present in both Super Mario 64 and Sunshine, but definitely was honed to an excellent level in Super Mario Odyssey. So why don't I start stop barking about escapism and move into the game and talk about why it actually is such a refined ecosystem of different worlds to explore. Okay, so let's talk Super Mario Odyssey. What is the basic premise of the game? Well, just about the same thing that you would find in any other Mario game. Bowser captures Peach, uh, but this time the stakes are ramped up a little bit. He wants to marry her. So basically what Bowser is doing is going around from uh, world to world, collecting things for their grand wedding. And it's up to Mario and his little friend Cappy to stop them. So one thing I want to talk about up front is that sort of the way the game since Super Mario 64 have worked is that Mario has sort of had a gimmick in, in, in Super Mario Sunshine and then Super Mario Odyssey. In Super Mario Sunshine, uh, Mario had a water pack called Flood that was involved heavily with the platforming mechanics and it shot water and had rockets on it and everything like that. In this game, Mario has a sort of sentient hat that he can use to capture other creatures around him or enemies like Koopas or Goombas or anything flying you know, flying bills or whatever. Uh, so, and that, that's not only the primary game mechanic, but it's also heavily involved in the platforming too. So I just want to get that out of the way. So if you hear me saying uh, capturing, in case you're not familiar with the game's mechanics, it means Mario physically takes over an enemy and is able to use their abilities. Like if he if he captures a frog, he his body gets zipped into the frog and the frog gets a little hat and mustache and then suddenly Mario can jump super high because he's in the frog's body. That basic concept that is strung out through all of Odyssey that makes sort of exploring different worlds and environments fun to begin with, right? 
Okay, so the premise of the game is basically Mario is flying around in an airship called the Odyssey, aptly named, with Cappy to different kingdoms to try and stop Bowser. And along the way, you explore, you know, 10 to 15 different sorts of small sandbox environments. Well, they're not small. They're, they're, they're small on the scale if you look at the game as a whole, but each of them is sort of a microcosm of itself. And this is sort of where the escapism comes in, because what I loved so much about Super Mario Odyssey was the ability to jump world from world and to have a completely different experience in each one of these different worlds. Right. So you start off in uh, the Hat Kingdom, which is Bonneton, and it's sort of this noir. Everything, every one of the Hat ghosts is, has like a fancy hat on, and it's black and white and monochromatic. And you start out there. That's where you start your adventure. But then you go to, I think it's Cascade, Cascade Kingdom, which is heavily based off of dinosaurs, strangely enough. Um, but there's just this sort of overwhelming sense of immersion when you first enter it. The orchestra comes sweeping in and you can run around and everything's colorful and bright and right off the bat you can capture a T-Rex within the first five minutes. It sounds nuts, but it's this sort of freewheeling expression of fun in the gameplay that comes through that makes getting into Odyssey super easy and keeps you wanting more. Now, just like Super Mario 64 and Sunshine, Mario is collecting a certain kind of item in this in this uh, game, and they're called Power Moons this time. I think uh, 64 was Shines, or no, I'm sorry, 64 was Stars, uh, Sunshine was Shines, and Odyssey is Power Moons. And basically what these Power Moons is act as is they are the gate stopping you from getting to the next world. The Odyssey needs a certain amount of Power Moons to be able to advance to the next world. And, you know, what is also so revolutionary to me about this game is the fact that so Super Mario 64 and Sunshine work in a similar way where you will enter different sandbox environments, but you will have to do so repeatedly to collect these different uh, stars and shines. And you have to keep re-entering and it sort of breaks the immersion of the sandbox because once you get one, you're booted out of the world and have to go back in. Odyssey doesn't do that. When you get a power moon, you have a freeze frame for a couple seconds and Mario does a victory pose and then you're dropped right back where you were. There's no break in immersion in the world and you don't get booted from it because there's no place for you to go. There's no hub world in this game. The hub world, I guess you could say, is the world map, but that's not even that. It's just something for you to interact with to be able to select worlds. And while you may not be able to go to every world right off the bat when you unlocked the proper set of power moons, you still are given somewhat of a choice. There are there are a couple times in the game where you're given a branching path decision on which world you want to go to, and it may not be the most freedom that you can give a player in a game, but it's something that you can at least feel like you have a little bit of control in. Now, back to sort of how, how Odyssey treats these uh, power moons. There are hundreds, I mean hundreds of moons in this game. It's kind of ridiculous. I, I believe there's upwards of uh, just physical moons you can get through achievements in the game. There's upwards of 800, and then you can also buy moons in shops, and you can max out at 999. Or I think you might even be able to go further. And basically, every time you do that, the Odyssey is sort of like a... Uh, a top hat shaped ship that has a balloon on top that gets filled more and more as you collect power moons. So eventually you end up with this giant balloon on top of the Odyssey when you max out when you max it out and it turns gold and all that good stuff. But what is great about Mario Odyssey's sense of progression is that the moons could be rewards on various different scales. So there's there's a single power moon and then there's also multi moons, which is basically three power moons in one. Those are usually reserved for uh, beating boss fights at the end of a world. Something like that. But the singular power moons can be found through so many different means that it's it's kind of funny. There's there I'll start out with the dreaded one. There's one where you can uh, you get a power moon for jump roping like 30 times, and then the next progression is 100 times, or the one where you have to hit the volleyball 
a hundred times back and forth to uh, to get it, and those can be grueling. But then it's even some things as simple as following a dog around and uh, butt stomping where he where he is digging, uh, or capturing a certain enemy and using their ability to get to a new area. And I think that, oh, that's I mean that's a well I want I'll talk about capture in a minute. But basically what I want to talk about in terms of the power moons and the way the game progresses is that to be able to progress in the game you have to explore and you have to be able to immerse yourself in the world to think okay uh, what kind of environment am I dealing with what kind of enemies are around me how can I use their abilities to affect my surroundings and what sorts of goals are common throughout the the levels because there are certain ones that reoccur but there is enough variation in them that you can you'll find tons of different moons that are not the same in other worlds as well so that's sort of power moons are sort of your progression meter for the game now let's talk about the capture mechanic a little bit more so I mentioned before that this is how Mario is able to take over other enemies as well as interact with different things in the environment. So, and this kind of feeds into movement too. So I guess I'll start with movement. Well, let's just talk, something I mentioned earlier is that exploring a world needs to be fun. And a big part of that is your character's movement, right? Character's movement needs to be fluid, dynamic, and it needs to be fun to control. And let me tell you, Mario is fun to control. Every, since Mario 64, they have been honing these movement mechanics to a point where the barrier of entry is very low, but the threat but the ceiling for mastery of mario's platforming skills is super high uh there's a point where you can chain enough commands to do you know you can do a hat toss jump off the hat dive toss the hat again jump dive off of that and to do a jump that is three times longer than you would normally be able to do or you can chain three jumps together to do a sort of somersault jump and it there's just so many different ways that mario can move that the simple act of controlling mario is inherently fun and that's a huge part of it that's a huge part you need to be able to know what mario can do how high he can get, how far you can get to be able to test your own limits with just the base character of Mario. But then you break in different mechanics from the capture mechanics. I'll just list off a couple different ones. Um, there's the there's the there's the fry cook throwing guys, which I forget their names off the top of my head. But basically, you take over one of them and you become this like free jumping character who can throw either fireballs or frying pans. Like that's crazy. Um, or there's my favorite one I think is in Bubbling, which is the Water Kingdom, where you capture these sort of octopi looking guys who who are in bubbles and they shoot jets of water from behind them and you can use that to either propel yourself forward or up or up then over but your water runs out of sort of like a it's not it's not limitless so there's various different ways that that you can capture enemies and use their powers to explore the world which is a huge part of what makes odyssey interesting because then you have to look at from each different capture you have to be able to look at your surroundings from a different lens and that's something that you have to do to begin with at the at the start of every world of odyssey as well. So I think I'm gonna go off of the gameplay here a little bit and talk about some of my favorite worlds and what I think they do really well. So let's talk about some of my favorite worlds in Super Mario Odyssey. I just want to go through a few of them and talk about what I think really makes for a really cohesive world design when you're traveling through so many different ecosystems in a game like Super Mario Odyssey. So I'll start out with what I think is my favorite. I think my favorite right off the bat is the Luncheon Kingdom, which is basically this world that's based around food. Everything has to do with food. The environment is all crafted out of sort of geometric abstractions of fruit and vegetables that make mountains and pillars for you to jump on, and the inhabitants of the world are forks with uh, chef hats. It's kind of... God, it's, it's, it's a really interesting world, and the music is really poppy and really cool, and it's all surrounded by the sea of stew. It, what, looks like, what looks like and interacts like lava, it's actually stew. 
Um, and I think that's sort of the elements that sort of make this my favorite world because it sort of tells a cohesive narrative that the entirety of this world is based is based around food as a concept, and it clearly has some influences from France in terms of the styling of the music and the uh, fork people in the kingdom. But it's sort of the fact that you can take something as simple as that and run with it to create an intensely like rich environment because this this entire place is sort of a mismatch of pastel pinks and greens and purples and fork people and food all over the place and golden turnips and the boss battle is a is in a you know it's in a pot on top of a volcano where they're making their special stew and you have to fight a bird that, that <laughs> actually I think this actually has the the funniest capture of the entire game is uh, you, as Mario, you have to capture a giant piece of meat because the bird that is trying to steal the stew takes the meat and drops it in the stew, and that's how you engage in the boss fight. It's really hilarious. And that aside, it's sort of this whole... the This idea that you can take one singular basic design principle and branch so many things off of it that it creates such an engaging world. Another one that is also one of my favorites that's more simple and probably not a lot of people's favorites is the is the bubbling kingdom, which is the the sort of ocean kingdom that I mentioned before. Um, it's not so much that the world is overly designed. It's actually really simple because it mainly consists of a beach and then it's got this sort of giant uh, fountain in the middle that is spraying out uh, sparkling water. So it, I guess it's not technically an ocean. It's all sparkling water. But this is sort of the underwater, one of the underwater worlds. Uh, and it's also sort of like the beach world. It, the best, the vibe I can describe best is sort of like a beach from Super Mario Sunshine, but uh, simpler. It's not like Delfino Plaza. Um, but it's just sort of how calming this environment is. You have soothing beach music. The water graphics are beautiful. The beach is awesome. And the captures all have to do with animals that explore the water, which is really fun because they all move in different ways. You've got standard cheap cheeps, which you can just swim through the water. You've got the sort of octopi guys that I was mentioning before that you can shoot up through the sky and do all this other stuff. And then there's sort of also a small resort too. So this this world sort of becomes a microcosm of sort of like a beach resort town. Uh, and it's just really calming. And I think that's something that is really special about it because how many game worlds can immerse you enough to just make you feel calm just by... I don't know, exploring them and relaxing in them. Like, Bubbling Kingdom does that to me. Um, but one one that we have to talk about, and it's probably the pinnacle of the world, it's not my personal favorite, but it's 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 up there, is uh, New Donk City. And just how, how Nintendo took something, like, based off of New York City and turned it into basically a bunch of cross-references from Super Mario is beyond me. Like, uh, taking Mario and putting him in a world with actual humans, it was a scary concept at one point, but now it seems... I don't know if it seems supernatural, but it can be done. We've seen it done, and it was done super well. The scale of New Donk City is incredible. There's so much verticality. Uh, it feels lived in. It feels like that there's people that do their day-to-day -day commutes here, and it feels like they all have different things that they do throughout the city and it's crazy because this is basically a giant platforming jungle gym for Mario. There's so many things to fling yourself off of, to jump onto, to uh, capture. Uh, there, it's it's crazy just how and, and, and the integration with some of Mario references. Like every street is named after a Donkey Kong character. Walk, walk lights are actually question blocks that you hit for coins. Uh, if you jump off taxi cabs, Mario jumps super high. It's just stuff like that that sort of add the layer of Mario. And oh, well, also the mayor of the, of the city is Pauline, which if none of you know who Pauline is, she's the original damsel that Mario was saving in the original super, or original Donkey Kong game. So just to hark back to those references and sort of creating this sort of metropolis that feels so vibrant and lived in is really incredible. 
So I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that to have cohesive world design that sort of immerses me personally, you need to have a sort of community or or inhabitants that's, that feel cohesive to the world. The environments need to be fun to interact with. You need to be able to look at them from several different lenses. Uh, exploring needs to be fun. But then on top of it, you just need to feel like you want to keep moving through this world. And that's what Super Mario Odyssey does really well because it gives you a chance to explore these sort of micro-environments get the moons that you need to be able to progress, but then puts you into a brand new world that intrigues you even further. And I think that's what's really great about that game, because it's not just about collecting the power moons, it's about exploring Mario's universe and appreciating his long legacy, and that's that's a whole other thing in it, but it's just something that Super Mario Odyssey does super well. This, is, this game is for anyone who wants to get out of their own head for a little bit and just have fun in a world where mo even just the simple act of moving around is fun. So I, I know for me, when I played this game last year, I wasn't in the best state of mind and this game was sort of my, it was my escape from dealing with some things that I had going on in my personal life and it was just everything I needed to be able to go home at the end of the day and just relax and just put myself out of a bad head space and just go to bed happy. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a time that I played this game where I find a moon that I'm not happy about it, and I think that's something really special. So that is going to do it for this for this week's episode, guys. Thank you so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. I hope this gave you a little bit of an insight into why I think escapism in games is a, is, a, is a good thing at a base level. It can definitely be abused and it may not be the healthiest habit in some regards if you're, you know, overindulging, but I think it's good as a way to be able to separate yourself from your own anxieties in a, for a little while and just enjoy something completely. So thank you for stopping by. Where can you find us? You can uh, follow us at 8BitArch on Twitter. You can email me at 8BitArch at gmail.com. Uh, join our discord you'll find the link to that in the show notes and yeah i think that's going to be it thank you for sticking around and listening to me ramble about video game design as always i love doing this and i will see you guys next time